0: Have you ever wondered why Jesus performed signs and did miracles and things? And why he wasn't like doing it all the time? I think I imagine if, if we were endowed with divine power, we'd be just doing stuff left and right, you know, just walking down the street. But sometimes like Jesus will perform a sign that nobody asked for and then other times people will demand a sign from him and he absolutely refuses to perform one. And we wonder what's going on because he seems to be so careful and deliberate with how he does miracles. Everything is so meaningful. And the reason is because he's not interested in displaying power for the sake of showing off, which is what I'd do if I had that kind of power. He's not using his power to serve himself. Jesus's Jesus' signs and miracles serve God the Father's purpose. On the one hand, they validate His message. The one who claims to be God is doing things that only God can do. Uh, but secondly, they reveal Jesus' identity as uh, the Son of God. And they also serve to illustrate a spiritual truth. And here's what I mean by that. Do you remember back in chapter 6 when Jesus fed 5,000 to the brim with... Two fish and five loaves. That was the sign that revealed that he was God, the one who takes care of his people. But then he went on and he interpreted the spiritual significance of the sign. And what did he say? He said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life. And this point was, just as he had provided physical sustenance in a miraculous way for these people, that we, he's also the one who provides spiritual sustenance in a miraculous way for his people. And it's just as necessary. Well, this morning we come to Jesus performing another sign, and this sign will reveal him to be the Son of God, but it also reveals a profound spiritual truth for us to take in this morning you say, well, what is that truth? Let's read together and find out. Pick up with me in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we come to your word and we confess that we are in total dependence upon you. Lord, when it comes to salvation, we bring nothing to the table. Each and every single one of us was blind before you opened our eyes, was dead before you breathed new life into us. And Lord, we know that there is nothing we can accomplish apart from the goodness and the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, there is nothing I can accomplish apart from your Spirit. And so I pray this morning as we open your Word and as I speak your Word, that you would season it with your Spirit and make it effective. For there is nothing I can do apart from you. And everything I have that is good is from you. And so, Lord, we praise you. And we want to worship you through your Word this morning. Please help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we start off and we encounter a problem. Uh, Last week we ended and Jesus had said uh, a very provocative thing, which was, before Abraham was, and then he uses the name of God, I am. Uh, Jesus claimed to be God and in response to that his adversaries picked up stones to stone him. But because he actually was God, he hid himself and walked out. In chapter 9, all we have is this, as he passed by. So this could be directly after the confrontation or it could be a significant time later. But what we do know is Jesus is walking through Jerusalem with his disciples and they pass a man born blind. Now, like any good theologian, Jesus' disciples encounter a suffering man in need and they immediately turn the situation into an opportunity for theological debate. Rabbi, who sinned? so that this man was born blind. Now, in asking this question, the disciples are revealing what was a prevailing view of suffering in their day, and in many places of the world continues to be a prevailing view of suffering, and that is the doctrine of karma, which is essentially, you get what you deserve. If you are righteous, life worked out for you. If you were a scoundrel and if you were wicked, life came after you. Now, since this man was born blind, his disciples are thinking either he deserved it or his parents caused it through their sin. And by the way, there is a kernel of truth here. If you persist in unrepentant sin, you will suffer for it in this life and in the life to come. Sin promises you life. Sin provides temporary pleasure. But it always, without exception, leads to death. But praise God, that kernel of truth was not the whole truth. The Bible is equally clear that sometimes people suffer specifically for righteousness' sake. That sometimes even, God has a reason for your suffering, and He has no intention of letting you know what that reason is. We saw that with Job who suffered for righteousness' sake. But God never told him why he was suffering. He simply reminded Job, I am God and you are not. You have no idea the complexities of ruling the universe, Job. Sometimes people suffer because it was God's will that through their suffering they would glorify God and accomplish good. And so it is that suffering is an expected, an expected feature of the Christian life. Paul in his missionary journeys in Acts 14, as he goes back to encourage all of these churches he planted, he says to them, it is through many tribulations that we will enter into the kingdom of God. Think about Joseph who was sold into slavery by his own brother's. And then he got to Egypt as a slave and he was falsely accused and thrown into prison in Egypt. And in no case did he deserve any of that. And it was years before he ever saw any good come of it. And yet, it was through Joseph's suffering that God accomplished much good and glorified himself. He preserved his family through famine. The ultimate example of unjust suffering is, of course... Jesus Christ. He was the spotless Lamb of God. The guy who literally is the only person who ever didn't sin. And yet it was all of our sin, the sins of the whole world, all who believe in Him that are placed on Christ on the cross. He suffered in our place. But it was His suffering, His unjust suffering, which made a way for us to be reconciled to God the Father. Well, like master, like servant, God will often use the suffering of his people to accomplish good and so glorify himself. And so all that is to say Jesus rejects their simplistic thinking, who sinned, this guy or his parents. And he reminds us that reality is not always as black and white as we might like to pretend. God has not granted us his perspective. What he does is calls us to trust him And he demonstrates that we can trust him because he sent his son to die in your place. Now this man was born blind for a reason. What was that reason? The text tells us that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is going to perform a sign on this man and he's going to use his years of suffering as a blind man to do good. But notice how God does this. Not only does God use this man's suffering to accomplish good in his own day, but this gets recorded into Scripture. And for thousands of years, people have read the story of the man who was blind and who was healed, and they have come to place their faith in Jesus Christ. It continues to echo throughout every generation. And through this man's suffering, God has has accomplished and is accomplishing much good. Now, I do not know all of you this morning. I don't know all of your situations. It is quite possible that this morning you are suffering. You are struggling. And it's no fun. You could be suffering because of unrepentant sin in your life. That could be the case. You say, how do I know? Well, I'd go to someone you trust, a brother or a sister, someone who knows you well and isn't afraid to speak the truth. And if you are in unrepentant sin, then I'd encourage you to repent and seek the forgiveness of Christ, which he is happy to give. But let me tell you, it's also possible this morning that you're suffering, and there's no clear reason that you can tell why. Now, there's nothing more natural than for a person to seek deliverance from their suffering. If you recall Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, let it be. And Perhaps you remember Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, who prayed three times that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. But in both cases, God determined that they were to continue along the path of suffering, which he ordained for them. What did he say to Paul? What did Christ say to Paul? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. (laughs) We always ask for deliverance, and there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus asked for deliverance. But what if we also prayed as Jesus did, nevertheless, not my will, but thine? What if you also prayed, Lord, if you don't choose to deliver me from this pain, how might I glorify you through this pain? God, show me how to accept the life you've given me with grace and teach me to use my suffering for your glory and the good of those around me. Help me to trust you even when it's hard, God. And that, dear friends, is a hard prayer, but it is a prayer that God loves. Well, Jesus turns his disciples from helpful theological reflection to action, and he says, we must work the works of God while it is day. Night's coming when no one can work. Dear friends, Jesus is insisting to his disciples that there's an urgency to the Christian life, that we're not called to sit back and live as if heaven has already come to earth. He gives his disciples a mission. Now, in this context, he's talking about his specific mission, Before he goes to the cross. The nighttime there is his crucifixion. But we also know that one day the sun will set on our own lives. That our lives are like a mist, James says. Here for a moment and then vanishing. And before he calls us home to glory, he's given us a great commission. To go and to make disciples of all nations. Church, we have work to do. All of us. And it's to reach our friends and our family and our neighbors for Jesus Christ. Well, we've considered the problem. Let us now consider the solution. Pick up with me in verse 6. Having said these things, <laughs> he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and washed, and he came back seeing." Uh, A Sunday school teacher once asked her class of second graders uh, what is small with four legs and a bushy tail and gathers nuts for the winter. Uh, One student eagerly raised his hand and she called on him and when he answered he said, "Jesus." If any of you grew up in Sunday school, you know that Jesus is almost always the answer. And as Christians, we really do believe that most problems we face in life also in some way have the person and the work and the word of Jesus Christ as the answer. And so here at the beginning of John chapter 9, uh, the man they encountered has a problem. He's been born blind. But don't think for a minute that the only problem that Jesus cares about is his physical blindness. No, this man is a son of Adam, just as you are and I am. Not only is he physically blind, he is spiritually blinded by the presence of sin in his life, and such is the nature of everyone born after the fall. Jesus is doing a physical sign to make a spiritual point. What is the solution to this man's blindness? Jesus. Now, much of the time, we like to talk about how we chose to follow Jesus. And that's true. Each of us is called to make that decision for ourselves, to decide, I'm going to follow Jesus. But it is also true to say that no one chooses to follow Jesus whom Jesus did not first choose and seek out. As he reminded his disciples in chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And if you're here this morning, it's very likely that Jesus is calling to you. He's speaking to you. The text tells us that Jesus was passing by. You see, the blind man woke up this morning not anticipating that this day would be any different than any of his previous days. He didn't do anything differently on this day. He didn't seek Jesus out. He did what he did every day, which was to sit and beg. Jesus, on the other hand, only ever did what God the Father commanded. And so it was on that day that to fulfill God the Father's plan was to seek out this blind man. And the blind man's sitting there. As far as we can tell, he has no idea who Jesus is. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up. He spits on the ground. He makes mud with his spit, and he wipes it on this blind man's eyes. You say, why in the world would Jesus choose to heal him in that way? Couldn't Jesus have just spoken, be healed? Yes, he could have. He could have waved his fingers. He could have slapped the guy. He could have done any number of things and healed the guy. You say, well, why did Jesus put mud on this man's eyes? Why would he heal him that way? I don't know. (laughs) There's a lot of speculation. I'll let you pick your favorite explanation. It doesn't seem clear to me why he does this. But for the Christian, that's okay. Because the Christian doesn't always have to understand everything that God does. We can take it by faith. The unbelieving cynic, on the other hand, persistently questions why God does anything in any way and mocks God as he does it. And if God doesn't act as I see fit, because clearly I'm the arbiter of all reality, then God must not be true. Because how in the world could God choose to do something in a way that I wouldn't choose to do? If it doesn't make sense to me, then it surely couldn't be true. Well, we're not always entitled to the why. We do receive the what. And this blind man this morning received the promise of God himself. Jesus never explained why he put mud on his eyes. He just tells the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Dear friends, this morning, if you have not trusted Christ, if you have not chosen to follow Christ, I hope that you are not waiting to have all of your questions answered before you trust him. Because there are many things in life that you don't have all your answers for. This morning you have the promise of God held out to you as did this blind man. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ died to save sinners like me and like you. And if you leave behind your wicked ways, if you stop blaming others, if you stop playing the victim, if you own up to your sin before God and take full responsibility... If you trust in the promise of God that Christ died for you and rose again, that he paid the penalty for your sins, that he has granted you forgiveness, if you trust in that promise, you will be saved. The Bible says God will make you his treasured possession. He will adopt you into his family eternally. So Jesus has held out hope to this man. He took the initiative. He offered the solution to this man's problem. But now, the man is faced with a decision. He's sitting there. This strange man has wiped mud on his eyes and told him to go and wash. Do I listen to this guy? I don't know. Or do I stay put because this is all absolutely ridiculous? Dear friends, it is faith alone that saves a person... But we don't know whether this man has faith until we see what he does. Your actions reveal what you believe. Your actions reveal your heart. Had this man said, I believe, but stayed right where he was, he would have proven himself a liar. But his actions proved that his faith was genuine. That's why Jesus elsewhere says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so the blind man with No idea why Jesus put mud on his eyes. Nevertheless, he exercises faith. He goes to the pool. He obeys the command of Jesus. Even though it seems strange and he doesn't understand it. And what is the result of that? His eyes are open. In more ways than one. Faith is intangible. Faith is clinging to the promises of God and the person of God, even when you don't understand. Faith is how you receive the blessings of God. But don't claim to have faith if that faith never reveals itself in obedience. You would be like the blind man hearing the words of Jesus, claiming to trust them and never getting up to go wash in the pool. How can you believe that Jesus will one day raise you from the dead and grant you life everlasting if you refuse to obey Him whenever you don't like His commands. That is a damning disconnect. A sign of true faith is that it is your joy to obey Him and that you trust His commands. Let's continue to see the reactions to this sign. Pick up with me in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, This man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but How he sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now the parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for they had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This is my favorite part here. He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, he does his will. God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out. We see four reactions to the sign that Jesus just performed. The first reaction is from the guy's neighbors. So the guy is healed. He's walking back to wherever he resides. And his neighbors recognize him. They say, isn't this that beggar guy, the blind guy who used to sit here and ask me for money? And others say, no way, it can't be him. And the man himself is like, no, it really is me. And they say, well, then what happened? And he simply tells him. Now, I want you to pay attention to what he says because this is proof That you don't have to be an all-star theologian to be an all-star evangelist. What does he say? He just tells them what happened. He says, he put mud on my eyes. I went and washed and I received my sight. He just pointed them to Jesus and said, this is what Jesus did. Later on, he says, I was blind. Now I see. Dear friends. It's not overly complicated to point people to Jesus, to say, this is the good news. God loves you. Jesus died for sinners like us. Turn to him. I was blind, and now I see. Well, well, these people are astonished. They don't know what to do with this. They're not necessarily disbelieving, but they want to know more. And so they actually do what's right. They take the man to their religious authorities. They have a spiritual question to say, let's take it to the people who teach God's word. That's generally a great principle. Not in this case. (laughs) Because the religious authorities in Jesus' day cared far more about themselves than they did about God. And so the second reaction we see is from the Pharisees. And they actually have a divided reaction. They come to the man and they say, how did you receive your sight? And we have two reactions. Some of them are against the man and against Jesus, and some of them are a little more optimistic. He says, well, he put mud on my eyes, and he told me to wash. I was blind, but now I see. And so they witnessed this incredible miracle, and the thing they latched on to is he made mud. (laughs) Because that was the thing that in their eyes was a violation of the Sabbath. And so after witnessing this incredible thing that happened to this man, they're mad at Jesus because he violated their religious tradition. But by the way, like in chapter 5, Jesus didn't actually violate the Sabbath. He never violated the Old Testament, just their tradition. And so they're upset with Christ for doing that. But then there's another group here in verse 16 who says this. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? The blind man is going to make the same argument later when he defends Jesus. The idea is God doesn't listen to those who hate him. God doesn't listen to those who are rebelling against him. So how could this man heal this guy if he is a sinner? And so finally they turn to the blind man. They say, well, what do you have to say about this whole thing? And unsurprisingly, the guy who's just been healed is very optimistic and he's very grateful. He says he is a prophet. He recognizes there's something divine going on with this guy and he speaks correctly. It's the truth. It's just not the whole truth. But he'll get there. Let's keep on looking. The third reaction we see is from the man's parents. And this is verses 18 to 23. Now, the Pharisees here are no fools. They want to be sure that they haven't fallen for a ruse, that this guy actually was blind, and he actually has been healed. So they go, and they find the man's parents, and they ask him, was he born blind? How did he come to gain his sight? And the parents answer very evasively. They say, yes, he's our son. Yes, he's born blind. We don't know who opened his eyes or how it happened. And then they kind of throw their son under the bus, don't they? Which, to be fair, they've kind of already done that because he's begging on the street. But then John tells us why they're so evasive. They say, he's of age, ask him. He can speak for himself. John tells us, God's word tells us why they're so evasive. They they said this, he says, because they feared the Jews. And that word Jews there stands for the Jewish leaders. Because they had already determined that if anybody thought Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, they were to be thrown out of the synagogue. Now let's look at chapter 12, verse 42, because here we find the exact same reason. Many of the religious leaders did not believe in Jesus. Actually did believe in Jesus, but would not follow him. Uh, Nevertheless, this is what John chapter 12, verse 42. It's talking about the religious leaders. It says this. Nevertheless, even many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, this is the ultimate tragedy here, my friends. Listen, this is the tragedy, okay? This man's parents and many of the religious authorities of Jesus' day ...recognized and clearly saw who Jesus was. They also saw that to follow Him as the Messiah and the Son of God... ...would come at great cost to themselves. To be thrown out of their synagogue. To lose social standing and religious community. To be ostracized as one of those weird Christ followers to lose business contacts and meaningful relationships. And though they knew the truth that Jesus was the Savior of the world, they would not submit to the truth because they loved the glory that comes from people more than that which comes from God. That's the real tragedy, to behold Christ, to know He is the Messiah, and yet to refuse to follow Him. Don't make their mistake. John Stott wrote a wonderful chapter in Basic Christianity on the cost of discipleship, and he wrote that Jesus never concealed the fact that His religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. If He offered men salvation freely, as He does, He also demanded their submission. Later he writes that thousands of people ignore Christ's warnings and they undertake to follow him without first considering the cost. But what did Jesus himself say about following him? He said if anyone should come after him, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. To their credit, they've counted the cost and determined that they don't want to pay it. Christian, don't expect the accolades of the world for following Jesus. The world wants you to act like the world. The world wants you to be like the world. Jesus wants you to be like Him, and that's way more enjoyable. But that will cost you with the world. As we consider the reaction of the blind man we see that he too has counted the cost. But he chooses to follow Jesus anyhow because, as Jim Elliott, was speared to death in his missionary activities, wrote in his journal, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, they didn't get a great response from the parents, so they returned to the man born blind. And this is our final reaction. Give glory to God, they said. We know that he's a sinner. And what they meant was, give glory to God and denounce this guy who just healed you as a sinner and a charlatan. Come on, just admit it. Now, as we consider his response, I just want you to note how effective his testimony is. This guy's not educated. He's a blind beggar. And he's just going to speak common sense to these highly educated religious men. He's going to refute the religious authorities with common sense and the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. He says, I don't know if he's a sinner, but let me tell you what I do know. And this is what every Christian can honestly say. I was blind, but now I see. Dear brothers and sisters, every one of us was blind, and it is only because Christ opened our eyes that we now see. Well, he soon recognizes that what has the appearance of an investigation is actually an inquisition. They have no intention of ever recognizing Jesus as God. And so they ask him again, how did he open your eyes? And he gets a little sarcastic here. It's a little sassy. I can appreciate that. He says, I told you already, and you want me to tell you again. Do you want to become his disciples as well? That's a bold move. This is a guy who fears God more than he fears men. This is a guy who's looking at these religious authorities and recognizes that God is much bigger than they are. And they respond that we follow Moses. Who knows what this Jesus guy or where he comes from? And then we find out that sarcasm is his spiritual gift. He says, what an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from? And yet he opened my eyes. And he makes a pretty solid theological argument here, one which the Pharisees have already used themselves. He says, God doesn't listen to sinners. And he just means God's not in the habit of answering prayers of those who are working against him, unless that prayer is, I repent. He says, if someone's a worshiper of God, though, and does his will, God does listen to him." Think about James when he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power when it's working. And he gives the example of Elijah who prayed that it wouldn't rain and God answered the prayer. And then Elijah prays that it would rain and God ends the drought. He doesn't do that for people who reject him. The second part of his argument is this. That Jesus has done a unique miracle. Never before in the history of the world has anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. The demons can't do that. The prophets haven't ever done that. But this guy did it. Therefore, God must be with him. It's pretty straightforward, common sense. And the Pharisees respond like college students. Instead of responding to common sense arguments, they insult him. They say, you're a sinner. You were born in sin. And they cancel him. And they throw him out of the synagogue. So notice this, that this man... received the gift of God freely. He received his sight freely and now, after receiving his sight freely, he has had to pay a price. He was thrown out of the synagogue. Dear friends, you can ask any Christian and you can ask this man. When you see things as clearly as he does right now, that price seems like a bargain. Let's consider our final point this morning, purpose. Pick up with me in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. So he's been excommunicated, tossed out of the synagogue, and Jesus comes and he asks him a spiritual question. He says, do you believe in the son of man that was jesus's one of his favorite ways of referring to himself son of man Um, it's a title of divinity if you go back to daniel chapter 7 i'll let you read it later you have a picture of the ancient of days god the father uh giving glory to the son of man god the son and jesus is claiming to be that person from daniel chapter 7 Now, this blind man is no expert, but he's already shown faith. He says, who is the Son of Man that I might believe in him? And Jesus says, you have what? Seen him in more ways than one. And it is he who speaks to you. (laughs) Think about how profound that statement is. This man has been blind since birth, and the first day that he has real eyes, he lays his eyes on the Son of Man. But he's not just looking with physical eyes. This guy is seeing things clearly for the first time in his life, and it has almost nothing to do with his eyes, because the eyes of his heart have also been opened. (laughs) And in faith, this man recognizes what Jesus has said to him, And he believes. And then he worships. Dear friends, that's the ultimate aim of our our faith. Yes, faith leads to obedience, and that's a form of worship. But faith should also lead us to worship our God. That's our highest end, the chief end of man, to worship God and enjoy God as we worship him. And so he does. He worships the Son of God, and when I finish speaking, we're going to continue worshiping God through song. Well, Jesus closes with a purpose statement to explain the sign. He says, I came that those who do not might see, and those who see might become blind. The greatest miracle in this chapter is not that the blind man can use his eyes now. The greatest miracle in this chapter is that the eyes of his heart have been opened to receive the Savior of humanity. And he responds in faith and worship even if it costs him his family and his religious community. Jesus says, I came that the blind might see. The second thing he says is what deeply offends the Pharisees, that those who claim to see Are made blind. That's the Pharisees. And they recognize that Jesus said that about them, so they ask a question with uh, an implied negative answer. They go, Okay, Jesus, are we also blind? And of course, the, the implied answer is, Of course not. We're Pharisees. Jesus turns to him and he says, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. He's talking about the guilt of rejecting the Messiah. They're still sinners, but they're guilty of a particular transgression, which is to behold the Son of God and call Him a liar. He says, but because you claim to see, your guilt remains. You see, these Pharisees are just as blind as anyone else, but they don't think they are. But Jesus in Matthew 15 called them blind guides. Blind, they can't see, they don't know God. Guides, they nevertheless lead many people astray. They don't see, but they guide. They claim to know God, but they don't. And Jesus says, My coming is a judgment against those who refuse to recognize their own blindness. They claim to see, but they were just as blind. And Jesus' coming hardens them in their blindness so that they reject Him. Dear friends, now is the day of salvation if you've been contemplating turning to Christ, don't wait. Turn to Him today. Well, I want to close with three applications. Number one, the text is clear that every single Christian was at one point just as desperate as this blind man. That spiritually speaking, we were all dead and blind. We couldn't see. And if left to our own Uh, if left on our own, we would still be there. Jesus had to choose us and find us and seek us out and open our eyes to receive His truth. And so that means, dear friends, that there is no room for boasting in the Christian life. We should be humble and grateful to God. It also means that we should have sympathy on those who are still blind because we know that is our own natural state. Secondly, we don't want, as people who have had our eyes open, to go stumbling down the hallway as if we were still blind. What do I mean? What I mean is that we don't go back to the things that we used to love before we love God. We don't act act as if we're blind if we are not still blind. Now, of course, we still stumble and we receive forgiveness and we seek it from Christ. But we seek the forgiveness. Lastly, the Pharisees serve to us in the church as a warning against religious formalism. If I were to ask you the question, are you right with God? Are you okay with God? Does God accept you or is He against you? My hope is that you would not assume, that none of you would assume that you are okay with God. My hope is that you would know that you are right with God. That if I asked you, you would say something along the lines of, I am right with God because I have trusted in the blood of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has earned my salvation for me. I know that I have merited nothing from God on my own, but have received salvation as a gift freely by believing in Jesus. I hope your answer is not, I'm right with God because I'm a good person. I hope your answer is not, I'm right with God because I try really hard to be. I hope your answer is not, I'm right with God because I was born into a Christian family 50 generations back. We've always been Christians. If so, then you are guilty of the religious formalism that these Pharisees have. No one is a Christian by physical birth, but by spiritual rebirth. Well, dear friends, these signs are helpful because they help us to understand what Jesus is teaching. And I just want to show you something that's really fascinating about these signs. One of the cool things is that Jesus didn't pull these concepts out of thin air, He didn't pull these ideas out of thin air, but actually, a lot of this came from the prophets. Consider this prophecy from Isaiah. It's God speaking to this coming servant of the Lord who we recognize is Christ. This is Isaiah 42. This is God speaking to Christ. He says, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. By the way, this is 700 years before Christ. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you, he says. For God so loved the world, what? That he... Gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the hope of the gospel right there. I will give you as a covenant. I will give you, number two, as a light. Not just for the Jews, but for the nations. And Jesus, of course, when he shows up on the scene, he says, I am the light, not just of the Jews. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Third, I will give you to open the eyes that are blind. Jesus was prophesied 700 years before to come and open our blind eyes to bring us out of the dungeon of sin, to release us from the prison of our own darkness. Dear friends, the gospel was in Isaiah. The gospel is on every page of the Word of God. ages and ages have passed, but God's gospel remains the same. And Jesus Christ is reminding us with signs and pictures the truth of what He has done for us spiritually or what He can do for you spiritually. As we prepare to take communion this morning, I just pray that we would savor this next sign. The body and the blood of Christ given to save sinners like us because he loves us.